Welcome back. Glad you guys are here this morning. I'm glad to be here this morning. Some of you, I think, know this already, but uh, I am battling some sickness this morning. In fact, um, doctor said that I was supposed to be on bed rest and to take the morning off, so um, I'm not. So when you, when you ask, if I say to you later, listen to me, you just look at me and go, you didn't listen either, all right? I know it's true. So, but uh, he called it a little bit of a touch of pneumonia. I feel fine. All right, um, so, but if I go into a coughing fit, you'll at least have some understanding about what's going on there. But uh, I was really excited to share with you this morning. We've been in the middle of this series. Um, in fact, this is week three of hashtag not my church. And uh, we have looked at two letters so far written by Jesus to churches, real churches that existed. Uh, in fact, the first one we saw Ephesus. We learned this idea as we walked away from it, and that was is that God was calling them to be a great church, and that a great church for them was focused on the great commandment. In other words, loving God and loving people. Then last week we came back and we saw a second church, right? And we learned it was called Smyrna. You got to say it like that, all right? It's the only way to say it. I loved all week long when somebody saw me. They were like, I now know how to say that name. It's Smyrna, and they did it just like that. It was great. So we saw Smyrna, it was the second church that Jesus wrote a letter to, and uh, we found out that for that church, Jesus said, here's what's great. He said, you have a great calling, right? And a calling is, um, it's doing what God has called them to do or to be, even for them to the point of death. They were living out this great calling. And so we've seen two measures of what makes up a great church over the last two weeks. And today we have another great thing that I think that Jesus has for us as to what makes a great church. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up, power them on, right? We're going to be in Revelations chapter 2. We're going to start in verse, um, let's see, we're starting in verse 12 today. Let me give you just a little background. We're about to talk about a city called Pergamos. Right now, some of your Bibles may actually say Pergamum. In the Greek, it's the same thing. Right, one is actually masculine, the other one is um, neuter or neutral. Right, and so uh, so it may have either one of those. And this city of Pergamus actually still exists today. The church doesn't still exist, but the city does. Um, the city now is called Bergama with a B as opposed to a P. Now. Um, Ephesus, when we talked about it, it was known as like this great political center, right? Smyrna was known as this huge commercial center. And as you're going to see today, we're going to see that Pergamos was this great knowledge center, right? In fact, they were known for three different things. Here's the first thing that they were known for. They were known as the home of Zeus, you know the Greek god, the one who was over all of the different gods? Well, it's said that Pergamus was his home, where he was born at. And so as you can imagine, much of his family, his sons like Apollo uh, and Hermes and all of these different gods that come out of his family were all said to be from this city. And so because of that, there was a massive amount, massive amounts, of altars and temples to different gods. In fact, we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But here's the second thing that they were known for. It housed the second largest library 
in the known world at the time. Most of you have probably heard about the Alexandrian Library, right? Which was said to, at this point in time, have housed one copy of every book that existed in the world at that time. That's incredible, right? And Pergamus, in fact, in the third century BC, their king, Eumenes, he decided that he wanted to have a library to rival, to rival the Alexandrian library. And so he began collecting and having his scholars to collect and to record all of the different books. In fact, he got a plan to be greater than Alexandria and he went and hired the Alexandrian librarian, right? In fact, he went and bribed him with so much money to come and to steal some of the books from Alexandria and bring them to his library. Pharaoh got word of this and Pharaoh stopped it before it happened. And he threw that librarian into jail and then, and then he cut off Pergamus. You see, the most widely used substance for writing on at that time was papyrus. And it came from a plant that was there in Egypt. And so Egypt was the massive exporter of this um, paper-like pulp substance. And so they cut them off and said, no more papyrus for you. If you're a Seinfeld fan, that should be funny, right? No more for you. And so Pergamus, in order to to continue their pursuit of knowledge, had to come up with a new type of paper. And so parchment, which already existed, but parchment became their thing. Now parchment is just stretched rawhides that you could write on. And so they began to use massive amounts of quantities of parchment. In fact, parchment actually means in the Latin from Pergamus. That's what it means. Because they became the massive exporter of parchment, not only for their own use, but for all of Europe and all of um, Northern Asia and even a little bit into Southeastern Asia. And so, um, and actually, that was one of the things that was the downfall of Egypt because they took away one of their major exports by doing that. Here's the third thing. The third thing that they were known for because they were a center of knowledge, they had massive universities and huge medical centers. In fact, one of the gods, Asclepius, all right, and I'm probably saying that wrong, and it's okay, all right, because there are names in the Greek and Hebrew and all of those that just don't translate well to, to English. And so, um, but the Greek god, Asclepius, right, he was the god of healer. He may have actually been a healer that was in Pergamos that did great things. Um, and we still see some of his medical symbology, not only his, but also Hermes, the god of, of knowledge and of delivering messages. It still shows up in our stuff today. And it comes all the way back to Pergamos. So if you've ever seen an ambulance and it has the rod with the um, two snakes on it, or if you've seen the rod with a single snake on it, those are both the signs of Asclepius and Hermes. And it comes straight from the medical worship and the medical information that was there at Pergamos. It's carried all the way through to today. So, with all of that, three different things, um, Jesus knew those things that were going on, um, but let's read and see what he says to the church at Pergamos. Starting in verse 12. 
He said, unto the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, right where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon, and I'll war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this incredibly powerful and pertinent letter. God, one that has so much deep-seated truth for us today as we pursue to be your church, as we pursue living out what it is that you call us to. God, I pray more than anything that we would be a church who would hear and not just hear, but would act on the things that you've said. God, we give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Well, that's quite a letter, right? So Jesus opens up the letter by saying, I know where you live. It's like the scary movie, I know what you did last summer, right? Ooh, I don't know if I want Jesus to say to me, I know where you live. You know, in the, in the seven letters, five times Jesus says, I know your works, when he opens it up. Only twice does he say something different, and this is one of the two times. Last week was the other time. And this time he says to them, I know where you live. I know that you're in the shadow of where Satan's throne exists. Now, most scholars believe that when he was when Jesus was talking about this, that he was talking about the throne of Zeus. Now in the late 1800s, a German archeologist actually excavated this site. He excavated at Pergamum and he found the temple of Zeus and the altar that was there. And there's a picture on the screen of it. It was 33 meters deep and 35 meters wide. Absolutely massive. And it overshadowed everything in the entire city. You could see it on the hillside from almost anywhere inside of the city. And then he says to him, oh, by the way, later this year, if you want to go see this, it's on display in Germany, and it's been being restored for the last five years, and it'll be opened up later this year. I was like, huh, what an interesting thing. But, <clears throat> as you can imagine, there was all kinds of worship to those gods that was going on, especially Zeus. If you have a temple like that, there was all kinds of expectations about how you would pay homage to Zeus inside of the city. And Jesus says to them that he says, I know that you've been faithful even 
Antipas. Who in the world was Antipas? Who in the world was Antipas? I've never heard of Antipas before. Here is, he drops in right here, and Jesus says, just like Antipas was faithful, Antipas was one of the early church leaders in Pergamos. In fact, um, church history says that John, the same guy who recorded these letters by Jesus, had appointed him to be bishop or over the entire city of Pergamos. And when it came time for him to offer worship to the other gods, he refused. And as a result, they took him and put him inside of a brazen or a bronze bull. There was a gigantic furnace. And they rolled it in front of the, the, the temple of Zeus. And they offered Antipas up as a burnt offering. Ouch. Doesn't sound like any fun, right? And so Jesus says to them, he says, you're doing a good job of standing up to these physical, these very overt attacks to the faith. Good job. But then he says, as like he does in most of the other letters, I still have a complaint. I have something against what you're doing that you may not even recognize that you're doing. He says this. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching, underline that word, teaching of Balaam, who taught, underline that word, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold, underline it again, teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus' complaint revolved around teaching inside of this church. Three times he said something regarding teaching. Two, two different accounts of teaching that he didn't approve of inside of the church. Now, like the question of Antipas, I think the question becomes, who are these people and what were they teaching? Who was Balaam and Balak, and who were the Nicolaitans? Now, to be honest, I don't think Jesus was calling out a specific group. You say, wait, Charles, he just named them by name. You're, you're right. I, I think Jesus was actually laying out a type of teaching, and let me explain a little bit about why. You see, Balaam and Balak were not contemporaries of this church. They did not exist in the same time frame that this church was a living, breathing organism as a church. In fact, Balaam and Balak, you can find their story in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Balaam and Balak, um, Balaam was a prophet for hire, right? And Balak was the leader, the king of the Moabites. And this was about the time that Joshua was walking into the land that had been promised to them. And one by one, the kingdoms that were in the land that God had promised to the Israelites were falling in great numbers. And with what seemed like to anybody that was watching from the outside, it didn't matter what the previous military might of a nation was, they were going down. And so Balak says, not us. We're not going to do that. 
So he comes up with a plan. <clears throat> he says, I'm going to call this guy named Balaam. And Balaam is going to come, and I want him to curse the Israelite people. He says, because I know that if Balaam curses this people, then we'll be able to win. Because whoever he blesses is blessed, and whoever he curses is cursed. And so, Balaam comes. By the way, this is an awesome story to go read with your kids at home. Because as Balaam is on his way, the donkey stops, won't go any further. And Balaam is beating on the donkey. And the donkey turns and talks to him. <laughs> you know what my favorite part of that whole story is though? Balaam doesn't go, why are you talking to me? Right? If a donkey starts talking to me, I'm going to go, whoa, what just happened? I guess if the donkey's name was Mr. Ed, maybe, maybe that explains a lot. But, so, go read the story with your kids. But three times after Balaam gets to Balak, he sets up to curse the Israelites, and instead he blesses them. Can you imagine how furious a king would get if he brought you in? He offered you all kinds of money to pay everything that he possibly could, and instead of doing what you wanted, you did the exact opposite? Yeah. At some point, Balaam began to fear for his life. And what chapter 25 tells us is, is that the Israelites still fell. You're like, wait a second. I thought Balaam blessed them three times. He did, but as the Israelites drew near, and what this passage right here in Revelation tells us when we put them together, is, is that there was a plan that unfolded between Balaam and Balak. And the plan was, is that the only way to make the Israelites fall was to corrupt them from the inside. And so Balak sent lots of beautiful women into the encampment. And the Israelites began to have relations with them. And they married them. And those women led them to worship all of the different Moabite idols and to eat food that was sacrificed to them. And God sent a plague against the Israelites and 24,000 of them perished. So knowing that this first group was a type, right? A type of letting something in that corrupts you from the inside and leads you towards a path that goes against what God has taught. Then I look at this second one and I go, well, okay, who are the Nicolaitans? Now, history doesn't record any specific group called the Nicolaitans. Now, there are some theologians who have made some assumptions and some connections to a deacon out of Jerusalem named Nikolai. And apparently, Nikolai held this position that inside of the church, it was okay to intermarry. Polygamy. And in fact, you didn't have to even be married in order to enjoy all things of marriage, according to this guy. And that's a strong possibility as to what might have been being taught. The other one is, and most scholars would say this, that the Nicolaitans represented a form of dominion or domination teaching. You see the word Nike, or we would look at it and go Nike, in Greek means victory. 
and laos is the word for people and so when you put that together you have victory over people and there's lots of different thoughts about what this means. It could be everything from there's a separation from those who are the laity versus the clergy, right? More power up here, less power down there. Sort of a thought process. And Jesus says, I'm upset at both of these teachings. He says, I'm upset about the teachings of subduction and corruption from the inside. And I'm upset about teachings that would say that there's a difference between people. I created all people. <clears throat> this is one of those places where I think things get a little bit interesting, by the way. Some of these cities, God drops some things in that you just go, there's just too much here for it to just be coincidence. Here's one of those things. The name Pergamum or Pergamos means by or through marriage. By or through marriage. Now you heard me say the word polygamy earlier. You probably know the word monogamy, right? Has the same second root there of gamos, which means marriage. You know, the Israelites, they were blessed and they could stand up to those direct attacks. But as they began to marry themselves into and with this other people, as they began to mix what they believed with other beliefs, the blessing of God was stripped away from them. You know, Caleb and I were just talking this weekend about how when you get married, everything changes. You ever noticed that before? Now. I try to tell women whenever they get ready to marry a guy, you're not going to be able to change him. I haven't found a woman who's listened to that yet. All right? They have the thought that we're going to change everything about him. And the truth is, guys, they change a lot about us. Right? Because we love them a whole lot. And so when they get up at four in the morning, eventually we start getting up at four in the morning because we like them. And things change. And we change. You know, the, the church at Pergamos was known as the compromising church. It was known as the compromising church because they allowed things as they intermixed things that were in the culture around them to seep into them. See, Jesus said, you've done a really good job at avoiding the frontal attack, but you haven't protected against the internal attacks. Most scholars say it's very interesting to see that the church of Smyrna, which was just before that, that Satan used direct attack after direct attack after direct attack against it. It didn't work. So he changed tactics on the next church. In fact, it says that they survived the direct attack and they've done a good job of holding fast to Jesus' name. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to corrupt you from the inside out. And they allowed things that should have never been there into their midst. You know, this can be especially true of a church today, right? Very easily, very easily we can get teachings and preachings that are not truth. Years ago, there was a, a preacher, his name was Rob Bell. 
Maybe you've heard of it before, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, that's okay. I liked the things that Rob Bell was doing early on in his ministry. He was creative. He was doing things that were off the wall and out there in order to reach people. He used all these creative illustrations. But as Rob Bell's ministry continued to go on, as he continued to teach, there began to show cracks in what he believed versus what I believed. And as those cracks began to show, I started stepping away from what he was teaching because I was going, I don't know. It, it, what he's saying now doesn't start to line up with what the Bible says any longer. And before long, as he continued down this path, Rob Bell reached a point of what's called universalism. In other words, all people get to heaven one day. They all find their own path, whatever way it is, because God loves us all. And that's not true. And he took a whole bunch of people with him. And I believe that Jesus is saying something very specifically to us as a church and to the church in general. And here's what it is, is that a great church has to have a great concern for the truth. A great church has to have a great concern for the truth. Let me give you another word for the truth for just a second. Doctrine. A great church has to have a great concern for good doctrine. You say, well, what is doctrine, Charles? I, I saw this really great definition. I'm going to share it with you. Doctrine is teaching from God about God that directs us to the glory of God. Let me say that again. Doctrine is teaching from God about God that directs us to the glory of God. Listen, I want to be very clear about this for just a second. A church is never about a leader. A church is never about a leader. If we rely on just the leader to have good doctrine, what happens is, is just like with Rob Bell and all of those people who got led astray by him and now are holding something that is completely not true. We have a whole bunch of people who miss it. Listen, here's something that I believe. And here's something that I think that is very clearly taught inside of this passage, especially when we understand that Nicolaitans are about this idea of dominion, somebody over some other set of people. And I believe that you have the same Holy Spirit in you that I have in me. Now, what does that mean? That means that you have the same ability to look at what God's word says that I do. Now, I'm afforded the, the, the wonderful ability to spend 20 hours a week studying it and preparing so that I can talk to you about it. But I, I want you to notice that it should always, whatever I say up here, should, number one, resonate in your heart because you have the same Holy Spirit in your heart as being true. If it doesn't sit with you, if there's some sort of check in your spirit about what's been said, then you absolutely should, number one, go back to what the Bible says, and number two, come talk to me about it. I don't have to be right all the time. In fact, I would prefer that you call me out if something slides off to the side just a little bit. Because Jesus was very clear to his church. Look, he says, therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen, he tells the whole church to repent. Not just the individuals who were doing the wrong teaching. The whole church was called to it. 
He was holding all of them accountable about this. Now, this is the second time in the passage that he's used the word sword. Second time that it showed up. And a sword was a symbol of power and authority. And Jesus, I believe, is very clearly stating that if this church would not repent of following teaching that is not his teaching, that does not glorify God, then he would come with the full authority of the word of God, which is the Bible. He would come with the full authority of that and strip everything away from this church. Listen, it's not just about an individual. It's about the whole. Now, some of you out there are going, how do I know? How do I know if something is good doctrine? How do I know if what I'm hearing is good doctrine? So I want to give you a test. Not that you have to take right now, a test that you can write down to test something that you hear to say, is this good doctrine that I'm hearing or that I've heard? Is this something that I should be ingesting? So here's the first thing. Where did it come from? What's its origin? Where did it come from? What's its origin? You see, good, sound doctrine always has the same origin. It's from God. If it has any other source, it's false. If it has any other source, it's false. So if someone starts off a statement with, I had a dream, and in my dream, God told me. I'm going to put up a whole bunch of question marks real quick on that one about whether or not that is good doctrine that's about to come out of that person's mouth. And it's gonna lead me to the second test. And the second test is this. Where is the authority of whatever this teaching is? Where does the authority for it come from? You see, sound doctrine's authority is always found in the same place. It's from God and it always, it always is revealed by the Bible. That's God's words about himself. Tim Chalice puts it this way. He says, doctrine that originates in the mind of God is recorded in the word of God. Doctrines that originate in the mind of God are recorded in the word of God. So if you want to know if something's good doctrine, the first thing is, where does it come from? If it comes from God, then it should match what's recorded inside of the scripture. Here's the third thing. Does it match all of Scripture? Does it match all of Scripture? You see, sound doctrine always aligns with all of Scripture. If you hear a teacher and you think, wait a second, that thing that he just said, that doesn't seem to line up with what I've read over here on this. That's good. You should question that at that point in time. Because all Scripture points to the same things. For example, there are some preachers right now that are preaching what we call a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? In other words, if you do these things, God wants to bless you, and he wants to give you all the desires of your heart. Now, there are some great passages that might help to lift that up, but if you were to read the letter to Smyrna, which was we just read last week, which was, hey, uh, difficult times are ahead, and it's going to be hard, good luck. 
I'm here for you, but that's it. I am your comfort. That doesn't sound much like a God that's saying, hey, I want to pour out all the blessings of wealth on you, does it? And so all of a sudden we have to question this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel because it doesn't match the totality of what Scripture says. James says to count it all joy when you face various trials. In other words, you will have trials. It's not going to be perfect just because you believe in Jesus. Let me give you a key to this, this particular idea. And it's a key that we try to use all the time, and that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. When you run across something in Scripture and you're like, man, I'm not really sure what this is talking about, the first thing you do is you go back and look at what other Scriptures say about that Scripture. Balaam. How do we know about him? Well, we went back and we looked at other Scripture. So we can find out and figure out about what that is because scripture always interprets scripture. If something's difficult and we don't understand it, we look at what other scriptures say about the same idea to help us to get a full picture about what God is doing because that is good doctrine. Listen, recently I was reading this guy and as I was reading his first point, I was like, oh, that's a, that's a really good point. And then his second point came up and I was like, whoa, that's slightly off from what I think that scripture is saying. Then he came back in point three of what he was doing. I was like, oh, okay. Maybe he just was a little bit askew on point two because point three, man, he's, he's back on in line. And then point four, he took what he'd just done a little bit off on point two and he went way out here to make his application. And I was like, whoo, what an incredibly sly thing that he just did. And I was like, if I wasn't careful about knowing what God's word was saying and using scripture to interpret scripture, I would have looked at what this guy just did with point two and gone, oh yeah, that's a good point. And then when he came out here to point four, I'd have had false doctrine because it was a false teaching that he had over here on, the, on point four. And I was like, that's how quickly it can happen. Here's number four. Does it grow us? Does it grow us? You see, sound doctrine always leads to stronger and more mature faith. It always leads to stronger and more mature faith. But bad doctrine leads to spiritual weakness. Worse than that, bad doctrine can keep somebody from becoming a follower of Jesus. The people who are following Rob Bell now who slid with him all the way down to universalism, there's a whole bunch of people now who are never going to become Jesus followers. And at the end of time, Jesus is going to look at them and say, I didn't know you because you weren't a follower of mine. That's where bad doctrine leads. It can take somebody down towards a false gospel. Here's the last thing. What do I do with it? The last test asks the question of what do I do with it? What do I do with this thing that has just been taught? You see, sound doctrine always has implications for my life. Always. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God 
and it is profitable. In other words, it's good for us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then he goes on in verse 17. Normally, most people stop there at the end of 16 because that's pretty good. That's like, that's a full sermon right there. But check this out. He says that the man of God, which can also be woman of God, would be complete for every good work. In other words, good doctrine points us not only back to God, but it helps to complete us in our pursuit of God. So if a doctrine fails any of these five tests, if it misses on any of them, then it's bad doctrine. It's false. If it fails one, it fails all five. Now, I want to distinguish for just a second. Because there's a difference between core doctrines and opinion doctrines. Alright? Now, one of our partner churches showed me this diagram, and I, I love it. I love this diagram that's up there. There are absolutes, there are conviction, there are opinions, and there are questions when it comes to things in the Bible. There are absolutes like the fact that Jesus came, he is the Son of God, he lived on earth a perfect life or sinless life. He died on a cross as punishment for my sin. Three days later, he rose again. And because of that, I have the ability to have eternal life. Those are core doctrines. Those are absolutes. There is no compromise on those things. If you compromise on those, you miss it. You end up at a false gospel. But then there are things that are convictions. Things that the, the Bible speaks to and that are important to us but, but, don't keep somebody out of heaven. Let me give you an example. Later this, later this morning, we're going to baptize. We've got a couple of kiddos that have made a, cho a, a choice to follow Jesus for the very first time in their life. And we're going to baptize them, and we're going to take them completely under the water and back up out of the water. Right? And we believe that baptism is a symbol. It makes a picture about what Jesus did for us. It makes a picture of him up on the cross. That's why we do it publicly. You ever wondered why somebody doesn't just get baptized in their backyard with nobody around? We do it publicly because Jesus was hung very publicly. And then Jesus was buried after he died. And so they go all the way under the water to make a picture of Jesus' death and burial inside of the tomb. But we don't hold them under, well, just for like three days, right? <laughs> okay, we don't do literal baptisms around here. So, but we bring them back up makes a picture of Jesus coming back to life. And that they now have a new life from him that they're going to use to follow him. Now, not every church believes that. And that's okay. Because baptism is not an issue of salvation. It doesn't get somebody into heaven or not. Although we believe it's the first step in obedience in your fellowship of Jesus Christ, it doesn't prevent you from getting what Jesus has promised through what he did. The church that decides to sprinkle somebody for a baptism is not how I would do it. I have a conviction about that. But it's not an absolute. <laughs> See the difference between those two things? Then there's opinions. Now opinions run rampant in the church, right? 
For example, <clears throat> I gave you two opinions earlier today inside of this message about the Nicolaitans, right? Who they were. Now, I actually didn't tell you which one is my opinion on this. I just gave you a couple different opinions that existed out there. And at the end of the day, neither one of those dramatically impact our understanding of the text. There's an opinion about how we should understand it. But the, the idea was still, the main idea, that teaching was important. And the type of teaching they were getting is important, and that they were a straight teaching. Didn't really matter what the straight teaching was, just that we need to stay to the right kind of teaching. Here's another one that shows up in, inside of our tribe, being Southern Baptists, is that Southern Baptists don't dance. Right? Now, listen, I want you to understand that I'm Southern Baptist because I can't dance. Okay? If you've ever seen it, brother, it has no rhythm, I promise. My wife will tell you the truth. I'll step on her toes, um, all kinds of stuff. It's, it ain't pretty. Right? I can't even like do the white man like, hey, just sit there and like go with the beat because after about three seconds, I'm off the beat. Right? That's how bad it is. And so, but listen, that's an opinion. It was an opinion that was formed about some scriptures that talked about what it meant to be modest and what it meant to look like that. And so the opinion was formed that the best thing to do was not to dance. Is that an absolute? Absolutely not. Is it a conviction? I'm not even going to hold it as a conviction. There are some that will, but I'm not going to hold it as a conviction. And then there's things that are questionable, right? Things that we don't have a whole lot of information about in Scripture. People make, they make opinions about these sorts of things, but really we don't have a lot of answers on them. Like, when is Jesus going to come back? I have no idea. He can come back tomorrow. I don't know. A lot of people have opinions about that. Great. Questions about the rapture. When does that happen? Does it happen? When will it happen? I have my opinions on that, right? But it's a questionable thing. And at the end of the day, you can totally disagree with my opinion on that. And you can still come worship here. Because it's not an absolute. The absolutes are about Jesus dying on the cross. And what he did for us for salvation. And so it's important for us as we look at truth to understand that there's some different levels of doctrine. But good sound doctrine sits inside the absolutes and is not compromisable. And here's what, here's what happens though sometimes. Sometimes we get confused and we move things that are questionable or opinions or convictions and we move them into a different spot. Listen, all kinds of churches and denominations have been formed from all of those sorts of things. Because they took something that was an opinion and they made it an absolute. So this is absolutely the only way you can do something. But here's what I love. At the end of this passage, Jesus, Jesus says all of this, all of this is to instruct the church to have a great concern for the truth. He says, you guys must continue to be a great concern church. And then he makes them two promises. By the way, if you haven't noticed a theme that runs through this, Two shows up a whole bunch inside of this. <clears throat> it's a two-sided sword, right? 
There's two things he has against them. There are two different teachings that he talks about. Hey, I'm going to let you go back and dig into that this week. We don't have time for that. But I thought it was really interesting as I started looking at it. But he tells them two promises. Two things that the one who conquers will get. Here's the first one. He says manna from heaven. The hidden manna. Now manna, right? If you are an Old Testament scholar, or if you're not, it's about when the Israelites were in the wilderness and God fed them. He gave them physical substance so that they could live and survive life in the desert. And every morning he provided them with just a little bit, well actually more than a little bit, they had more than enough for the entire day. The next morning there was new manna there to make whatever it is that they needed. And Jesus said, he said, I want you to understand who I am. He said, I am the bread of life. The manna of life. That's who I am. You see, he took this Old Testament idea about God providing for the very physical need and said, I will provide for your every spiritual need because that's who I am. And he says to the one who conquers and the one who holds to great concern for great truth. I will feed you. Now, lots of scholars pointed to the fact that Jesus in John chapter 13 instituted something with bread. He took and he broke the bread, which was his body, and he handed it to all of his disciples. And he said, look, do this in remembrance of me. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. And next week, we're going to celebrate that as something very special that God has done for us. He says the one that conquers, you get to be a part of that. And then he says, here's a second thing. He says they will get a white stone. And the white stone has a lot of different symbols that it represents. Perhaps the two strongest, I'm going to stay on the two thing for just a second, but here's the two strongest, I think. In the court of law, the jurors were given two stones. They were given a black stone and they were given a white stone. And after hearing everything, they would cast the stone, either black or white, guilty or innocent. And so the stone would have projected this idea of innocence or being set free. But here's the second place that it showed up. In this time, there were gladiators, right? Guys who would go into the arena of battle and they would fight. And they were, most of them were owned by somebody. They were slaves to somebody else. And if they were a good fighter, at some point they would get a chance to fight for their freedom. They would have a, a series of battles that were designed to test every last bit of it because they were getting to be too long in the tooth, if you will, in order to be in the arena. And if they survived the battle, they were given a white stone, which was their freedom. And I think Jesus is saying, I think more than anything, he's saying, this is what I offer to you. Not only innocence of all the things that are held against you, but freedom. You see, the gladiator with that white stone could never be put back into the arena ever again. And I think Jesus says the same thing. He says, look to the one who conquers, to the one who hears all of this. I give this white stone 
and I give them a lightstone with a brand new name and a brand new life that only I could give them. John 8, 31, 32 says this. I think it summarizes everything we just said. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And he says, and then you will know the truth. And say it with me. The truth will set you free. In other words, to those who are called by his name, those who struggle to follow, to learn, to grow, we're given a white stone of freedom that nobody can ever take away. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this message today. I thank you for the victory that we have in and through Jesus. God, I pray that as a church, as we are your bride, that we would be holy. God, that we would be greatly concerned about our doctrine. God, that it would not just be me as a leader, but as a people together. God, that we would pursue your truth. And we would do it relentlessly. You know, some of you that are sitting out there, if you were honest with yourself, you, you might have just realized for the very first time that um, if, if you were in a court of law and everything was brought against you, Jesus wouldn't offer the white stone because you've never accepted the free gift that he's given. You're still in the middle of the fight because you've never been given your freedom. Listen, Jesus wants to give you your freedom today. He wants you to be free of your sin and the price that, they owe, that you owe for them. If that's you at the end of the service, I'll be in the back. Caleb, I think, will be back there as well. Come see me. Come see me and talk to me about what it means to be free. Because I don't want you to miss out on that. God, we just give you all of the glory and all of the honor in your name. Amen.